Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Fistle Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Peter Sims on the show. Peter Sims is a best-selling author, co-founder of the Silicon Guild, and founder of BLK SHP Enterprises, Inc. His latest book is Little Bets, How Breakthrough Ideas Merge from Small Discoveries. Thanks for being on the show, Peter. It is a pleasure, truly. And am I right in BLK SHP uh, standing for Black Sheep? <laughs> it is. Yay! Absolutely. Maybe you could tell uh, tell me a little bit about um, what what in the world that is. Black Sheep started because at Pixar they call people Black Sheep who challenge the status quo. And it was inspiring to me to think that somebody at Pixar uh, challenging the status quo uh, was a pretty unique kind of individual, a unique sort of idea, this, uh, this notion of a Black Sheep. Because, uh, you know, having taken the author's path and the creative path in life, um, along with people who are friends who are social entrepreneurs or uh, writers or other artists, you know, there's a sense that, hey, you know, taking that path of uh, less travel by is kind of like being a black sheep, but you can't do it alone. And so we, we, we just created uh, kind of some hats and T-shirts that then turned into a formal collective of creative thinkers and doers. And now we have over 2,500 
of these folks all around the country and around the world. They range from pianists to executives in, in large organizations who have a really strong creative side that they want to have nourished. And we are just all about nurturing that creative side, that black sheep of, uh, side of everyone. Uh, and we, we, we do that through creating community. And then we also do that through taking social action, what we call operations, to support social entrepreneurship. That's really exciting. How, how can someone become a, a black sheep? Is there an application process? You know, the way it's worked up until now is we have just let it kind of expand organically. Um, and so, you know, we have a Facebook page. Uh, we also have, uh, you know, in the works right now, we're going to be taking a bus tour around America this, this, this uh, late this spring. And we're going to be visiting a whole bunch of different places uh, that typically aren't seen in the traditional media uh, that typically may not be known for people living on the coast or living in, in cities where they're thriving. And we're going to be going to Detroit. We're going to be going to Tulsa. We're going to be going to uh, the Mississippi Delta, Alabama. Uh, and the whole goal of the trip is to, A, bridge the, the, uh, the empathy deficit that exists, I think, uh, right now in America, and, and to also try to do some storytelling around where people are reinventing themselves and their organizations and maybe even some of their communities uh, in the case of Detroit uh, or Pittsburgh and, and, and to try to, to share new, uh, find new narratives for what the American dream is today and what it can be. Uh, and then also take some social action. So we're going to be, uh, we hope funding fellowships, uh, Fuse Corps fellowships and uh, some mayor's offices around the country and these fellows work with mayors for a year, trained in design thinking to help catalyze across sectors social action. So through that, we'll be touching a lot of people and finding more ways to bring people into Black Sheep through a through a new website and, and digital platform. So that's really amazing. Um, in what ways are you going to be uh, helping with the empathy deficit? Well, you know, I think a lot of it is going to be through storytelling. So. You know, I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. In my own personal case, I grew up in a small town uh, in Northern California. My, uh, my, my parents were very well educated. My, my uncle was a logger. Uh, my, uh, you know, my, my aunt runs a campground. And, you know, I think just to put myself in Uncle Joe's shoes through the years has been a really valuable exercise to understand uh, America a little bit better. And, uh, you know, for people who have Uncle Joe and Aunt Liz, we all kind of have those folks, uh, you know, we're, we're much better off for it. And I think for those who, who don't interact with, with the Uncle Joes and the Aunt Liz's as much, um, you know, we want to go to places, like I say, Detroit, where there are people like Alan Conyerts, who's working in the middle of the Russell Industrial Center, uh, which used to be inhabited by... Uh, industrial printing presses and publishers that had been cleared out after globalization and where Alan, a, a craftsman of the highest order, uh, has had to reinvent himself and his business going from redesigning kitchens in Detroit to creating beautiful chairs uh, that he has uh, designed and created and now sells online and has had to kind of figure out how to be an entrepreneur uh, in a whole new way in this uh, in new economy and now has a, a small staff and more than that, he's, 
one of two people who've been at the Russell Industrial Center the longest. If you go into this building and walk through the hallways and hear the artists and the entrepreneurs stirring, it's a, it's 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 an it's an uplifting feeling of there being a chance for reinvention and renewal in America. I feel like Detroit can be the womb of reinvention and renewal. So we want to tell those stories to try to have bridges between the uh, worlds. That is so exciting, and you're bridging lots of different worlds. Um, you know, entrepreneurship, art. You're 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 fundamentally interested in entrepreneurship. Not 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 everyone is, right? So um, you know, you have lots of interests. It seems like. I, I am a core, I feel like, I always feel like I'm a core, I think of myself as an entrepreneur, um, even though I've accidentally been an author, uh, and, you know, it's it's an honor to be able to write uh, for, for publications, I always feel of myself more as an entrepreneur, a social entrepreneur. Is it because you like innovation, you like at a large scale, like you like, um, like, like creative products that make a big impact in a big way. Is that part of it? That's part of it. I mean, what the, the, the Silicon Guild is a, is a, is a company that is looking at the publishing industry and how we can organize um, the authors uh, and the audience a little bit better to be able to service those needs than the current system. So there's, there's certainly a passion that comes for wanting to see change in an industry in that case. Um, and, and I think also it's just, uh, the, the, the feeling that, uh, working with a group of, of people, uh, in collaboration, I try to be very, you know, very collaborative in the way I work. It's, it's uh, very rewarding. Uh, it's fun. Um, you know, and, and by the way, you can make a, a decent living. I've never been motivated by money more than to want to send my kids to good schools, um, and, and so, yeah, entrepreneurship has just been a chance to work with people I really enjoy working with every day on interesting problems, following that curiosity and, uh, and, and to be able to, uh, you know, to actually affect change. I mean, to be, to be a part of, I always love the Alan Kay quote, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And I feel like entrepreneurship is, is a vehicle for that. Oh, I really like that. Oh well, I want I want that quote to sink in my head for a second. There, you're not really predicting anything if you invent it. You're just. Uh, I feel like I, think, I feel like we can go further with that analogy in some way if I think about it a little bit further. Anyway, well, maybe we'll return to that in our interview. Um, so I was wondering, you know, just just randomly, just woke up in the middle of the night wondering, what do Apple CEO Steve Jobs, comedian Chris Rock, prize-winning architect Frank Skiri, and the story developers of Pixar films all have in common? Do you have any idea? Well, I mean, when it comes to the creative process, I think um, having studied the creative process for this for this book that you mentioned, Little Bets, the common element that stands out to me that I didn't know about before was just how experimental, like anyone, uh, Steve Jobs used design as the mindset to drive product development at Apple and, and design is inherently uh, experimental and, and driven by prototypes and, and driven by you know, the rapid prototyping process of trying a lot of things in order to identify opportunities and then once you have, narrow in on those uh, to, to delve deeper into uh, what will be more of a completed idea. Uh, so he may have started with, uh, I'm just throwing this out there, I've heard this number roughly for around 100 ideas to get to three, 
to get to one, right? So, um, you know, that, that's sort of the scuttlebutt from the Apple uh, community that I've heard. Mm. Now, Chris Rock, or all comedians for that matter, must, must take their material to small clubs to try it before it's anywhere near ready for the big show. And so he, Chris goes to a place right near where he lives in New Jersey, and uh, he will show up unannounced and with scribbled ideas on a piece of paper and try one after the other after the other until he starts to hone in on ideas that could be a joke that could lead to, um, you know, one piece of a 60-minute act. And he will do that for six months to a year before he's got 60 minutes of material. So there's an enormous amount of experimentation, most of which doesn't work. We can debate whether that's failure or not, but that's the process of creating comedy. And, and Frank Geary or an architect like that will often work through dozens and dozens of models in order to refine and, and, and determine the, the, the problems that he's really trying to solve with a, with a piece of architecture. So this realization for me and through the research that, Scott, you're way more familiar with than I am, is that the reality of, a crea- of creators or inventors is often that they have to try, you know, 95% ideas that don't work for every 5% to become great. Roughly that, you know, Hewlett Packard, they would say 95%, you know, something like 94 small bets to come up with six breaks. You know, you would have, uh, you know, at, at, at Apple, we said 100 to, th- to 3 to 1. 100 ideas to get down to three good possibilities to get down to one final idea. Um, you know, at, uh, at The Onion, they keep track of statistics at The Onion. They have to come up with uh, something like, uh, they come up with something like, uh, you know, several hundred, I'm forgetting the exact number, several hundred uh, headlines every week to get to 18 that finally make the cut. So it's like a, a 3 or 4% success rate. Right. And so here we are schooled to be coming up with the answers all through our lives. And then the reality of of creativity uh, in all these different fields is that you have to be using a a learn by doing mindset. And and we just don't have that. So that's my that was my goal with Little Bats is to give people, uh, you know, kind of a a story driven uh, research based book to help them develop that mindset. Yeah, no, I really like that aspect. And it, it really it's very much related to this idea of taking risks and uh, and you're saying take I mean what is innovative about what you're saying is you're saying lots of small risks add up um, because they provide good feedback um, yeah so I think there, it's really there really isn't risk right if you're taking right, a small right. bet the definition of a small bet is that it's it's an affordable loss and this is a really important point you've determined up front which you can which you're willing to lose, whether it's time or money. You know, you've actually done that analytically, so that you you have nothing to lose. You're just trying something. So, and, yeah. yeah, I love this, and I think can apply to lots of areas of life. So, what about um, guys with social anxiety that um, are terrified of approaching women that yeah. they find a, that they find adorable? Um, yeah. Do you think that this this applies to them as well? I mean, a small bet would be literally just smiling at the person. Right. Well, you know, I'm not an expert in a non-creepy you, way <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the scientific research on this as you are, but but I would I would suggest that um, dating, having I'm married, but when I was dating, I, I was 
I was terrible at it at first. I was a late bloomer. I struggled through uh, trying to figure out who I was and what you? I was for. And, oh, absolutely. I mean, everybody oh, has you, to, right? You're pretty smooth. Yeah, you're pretty smooth. No, everybody has to, right? I mean, this yeah. is life. Um, this is uh, so. So, from a dating standpoint, for me, you know, I've probably gone out on more dates in San Francisco than anybody I know after wow. business school. Did you find them online? Did you do like OK Cupid or something? I tried. I tried that. I did. I, I went out with a few people through online. I tried. I tried a lot of different things because uh, you know I really was trying to figure out what would be the right who I would be right for, what the right fit would be. And, yeah. and in San Francisco, it's kind of a tricky market, so yeah, that's yeah. a longer conversation. But I um, bet. I bet. Yeah. But yeah, it's little bets. It is little bets, and it, it wasn't. I wasn't thinking about that when I wrote the book. But a lot of people have mentioned it to me. Um, as a, as a potential application. But the point is, is that, is that anything we do that's new, that's, that's developing it, whether it's a new comedy act or a new skill set or a new, uh, fluency and comfort in an area that we're not strong in, you know, it's deliberate practice. And, and so where I hope to see, um, the parallels with the psychology research with little bets is where Carol Dweck talks about developing a growth mindset. You know, you can develop a growth mindset by by being willing to try things and by being willing to learn from small setbacks. And, and it gets easier, right? It gets easier for Jerry Seinfeld the more he gets into developing a comedy act, just as it gets easier to go about dating, just as it gets easier to do all these things, if you're willing to just get out there and start, you got to try and you got to work at it. It's not easy for anyone, and that's the myth. I'm I'm hoping we can start to break apart. I really like this. And um, so, what is what is talent then? What, how would what, what what would you say that's just a concept that doesn't exist? Well, everybody has their talents. Everybody has their various really strong strengths, and everybody has things that their 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 weaknesses are. And I'm not suggesting that there's not an important uh, recognition of the role of talent. Like, for example, Tom Rath, my colleague with the Silicon Guild, has written books called Strengths Finder books, Strengths Finder 2.0. And I'm a big believer. We all should play to our strengths. I mean, that's in pretty empirical and Tom's really kind of been, you know, leading the way on popularizing that. Um, so we should try to have enough self-awareness to understand our strengths. One of the things I've been struck by in doing my research with different leaders or different people though, is how many weaknesses they all have. Steve Jobs failed many, many times. Yeah, he could yeah. not have predicted too many times over what Pixar would become. He had no idea. He just bet on the right people with Ed Catmull and John Lasseter. Um, you know, uh, Howard Schultz, plenty of weaknesses. Wendy Kopp, same thing. But they all understand how to surround themselves with people who complement those weaknesses. So uh, I think all of us have some really superb talents, and we just have to identify those and and uh, you know and recognize we don't have to have it all. We don't. Nobody does. If you be truthful and honest, people, you know, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. I think. No, I, I definitely agree. Um, I tend to be a bit cheeky, Peter Sims. So uh, thanks yeah. for just going with me. Um, I, I I'm wondering uh, one one if you could describe one story that you have in your book that uh, uh, my my students and I we we both we, we found it just absolutely compelling. Um, the story of how Pixar films um, had such amazing success through their storyboarding process. Could you could you just 
just briefly talk uh, talk about that? Yeah. So Pixar will take about five years to make a new film, and when they're beginning a film, the first two years are dedicated to understanding the story. And the, um, you know, the Pixar stories are done literally by taking, you know, small note cards, drawing pictures on them and putting them on, on, on the board. So the story artists come up with these really rough ideas for characters and for potential scenes, uh, potential storylines. And they put those up and then they, they literally act those out in front of their colleagues. And, um, you know, some of these ideas will make it, but most don't. And so it's this process of constant revision. And the story team uh, is, is working in an environment where they only use this technique that they call plussing. And plussing is where, uh, you know, they take ideas, they see the ideas uh, as the story artists are presenting them. And as the colleagues reflect on the ideas, they don't use harsh or judgmental language. They say they use two techniques from improv using yes and, taking the idea and saying yes and, what if we did this? Yes and, what if we did? And that's plussing. And they just constantly plus ideas right through to the end of the film at, at Pixar. This is the culture. The improvisation is at the core of the culture of Pixar. And the person who makes the decision on the ideas ultimately is the director. And the ideas have to be perfect in the mind of director before they get green-lighted. And the director... As the story is maturing and as there's enough characters and storylines, they'll put it into a comic book version of the movie. Uh, these are called reels, and they show those versions with very rough dialogue to larger groups, and then they solicit feedback from everyone in the room, including the janitor or people who work in the cafeteria at Pixar, and they say that the director then reads all those comments and decides what to integrate into the next iteration. And so literally... Thousands, millions, really tens of thousands of storyboards, 50, 60, 70,000 storyboards per movie. Um, uh, millions of little bets go into each Pixar film. And the great ideas can come from anyone. And so the culture of Pixar is very strong in the sense that John Laster, who's the chief creative officer, doesn't have all the ideas, nor does Ed Catmull, who's the president. And he, Ed Catmull, who I've come to know personally, will always say, I don't, Peter, I don't know all the ideas. If you have ideas on writing a book that I can learn from, I really want to learn from those. And that's the curiosity and humility of the Pixar culture uh, that is very unique in the corporate world. That's so great. And it dovetails nicely with psychological theories such as the uh, Darwinian model of creativity that uh, Dean Simonton and has uh, been a big proponent of in which the creative process Dove, um, creative process mirrors the evolutionary process in which you have uh, blind variation. You, you, you produce lots and lots of variants, ideas, without knowing which ones are necessarily going to be the ones that are the winners. And then you have selective retention where you, you choose the most promising ones. But that initial stage um, is uh, very has been shown to be very important to the creative process. Are you familiar with Dean Simonton's theory? Very much so. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And he's Eddie Davis, isn't he? Uh, yeah, he sure is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he's done some superb research. So yeah, very consistent. And uh, but but your selective, not your selective, your blind variation aspect includes lots and lots of small bets or absolutely. little bets. And I think that's a really unique contribution to the field. This idea you have. Wow. I mean, it's. I'm just synthesizing. I'm. It's not a. 
it's you know it's not original research. It's just really what I what I hope oh. it can help with is just a a translation for people. Well, I really I mean I appreciate that modesty, but I think synthesis is you're still creating something new, mm. right? It's like saying like human consciousness is oh, it's just you know it's just the combination of uh, the emergence of different brain regions, <laughs> but what emerges is freaking original. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. so don't yeah. don't be like I you know that too. <laughs> what do you say? I had thought of that one before. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I think of things on the spot that yeah. I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth. Um, so there's just so that's, many things we can. Black sheep, right there. That's definitely... you, you called me a black sheep at one point. Did you ever retract well, that statement? Yeah. No, no. You are. Am I still black. okay? Good. You're I, I still count. <laughs> okay, good. Um, what do you say? hundred percent. Oh, yay! Yeah. Woo. Um, well, we got to get you the swag. Well, my mom always said. Scott, you when I was really young, she said you you always dance to the tune of a different drummer, and in that context, I think she was trying to make me feel good for the fact that I um, literally would dance to a tune of a different drummer while all the other kids were supposed to be reading a book. I'd be yeah. like running around with my Superman cape or something, and people were like that's weird. But yeah. um, but I guess as an adult, yeah. it's called creativity. It's being human, right? And and it's. Uh... We need to empower that in young kids. I mean, it all goes back to education. And uh, if we can, in some way, small way, be role models to those coming up and say it's okay to be different and, and to be unique and not be fit in with the, uh, you know, all the, the, you know, some perfectionist ideal, then that's pretty empowering. And, you know, the secret is, I think the real secret is, is that all those people who are, you know, we all go to high school and we're cool kids or not, I, you know, I, like you, I was, I was definitely, you know, an outsider, but you know, when you get to the point in, you know, where we are in our lives now, all my friends from high school who were the cool kids are actually, they're all black sheep too. You know, they want to be doing, you know, unique creative things in the world as well. And uh, they, they felt enormous pressure for conformity. So, you know, this is a cult, this is a, I don't know if it's endemic to all cultures, but there's certainly a, enormous amount of conformist pressure in modern uh, industrial life, you know. Well, this is interesting. I want to talk about this because on the one hand, there is a uh, innate drive to belong. And, yeah. and often we compete with our innate drive to for uniqueness. And yeah. But clearly there's individual differences. Some people are clearly weighted more to the other. You know, they're clear there are people who have a very, very high need for uniqueness and actually don't care as much about belonging, whereas those who are obsessed with belonging and those people don't tend to be as creative, I don't think, um, if, you're, if you're too much in, in that right. direction because uh, then you're just – you're never going to take risks. Well, and you know, it's, 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 it's difficult for people who feel the pressure to conform because they never get to access that part of them that is creative. So we, I start with the, prop, with the belief – that everybody has an inherent creative side. Everybody, you know, for me, I didn't know, I never was called creative until my 30s. I mean, really, I mean, I got C in my art class and, you know, I never thought of myself as creative. And then I got into design thinking and George Kemble taught me all about design at the D school at Stanford. And all of a sudden, wow, I feel like I'm a totally creative. But now I'm like, you know, that's sort of what I do is creativity. But sort of. <laughs> and so it's what you do. And so. That was all there waiting to be unlocked, and it had to be unlocked through a lot of cultural pressures and, you know, should you be a venture capital investor and should you do the, the safe things in life? You know, I have a, a lot of stories to share about that, but it's hard. It's hard because, you know, we're, we're all 
you know, in this post, in this industrial, post-industrial world, we're all taught to be focused on a particular function from a pretty early age. And, um, you know, there's a, there is a very real sense of fear that people can get lost on that, you know, machine that's chugging along. And, and so there's, there's very real reasons why, you know, conformity from early stages makes uh, sense from a security standpoint. What I'm saying with black sheep is like, Hey, be the outsider, be different. The only way you can do that is in community with other black sheep across disciplines. Yeah. Let's empower each other. And, and then if we can do that, then we can really start, you know, hopefully to ripple into uh, the conformity puzzle. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a really good point. It, it really is about finding your, your clan, so to speak. Everybody, so, need, everybody needs it. We all need that. Right. If, if, if everyone, I mean, if, if everyone tomorrow decided they're going to become uh, Peter Sims black sheeps, then they would all conform, technically. Right. That's right. It would so be boring. It would be yeah. the black sheeps would be really boring. Yeah. Um. So we need society needs a certain amount to be black sheep. A certain amount to uh, what? 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 What are the white the white sheep doing? They're they're just following the the societal um, script in a way, or you expectations. Know, to, to me, to me, you know, like I say, I think most humans have a great black sheep in them. I think that the people I think of as white sheep are people who are cowards, who use, who manipulate humanity and who are evil. Um, you know, just, you can think of people throughout history who fit that mantra and who are, who are just, uh, you know, they're just evil. I want to make clear you're not talking about the animal because I don't want to offend any white sheep who are listening to this uh, podcast. <laughs> Um, you were talking about humans as a metaphor. Just want to make that clear, because yeah. a very large portion of my podcast audience are sheep, um, the actual sheep, um, the animal. So I want to just make that clear. <laughs> That's good that you mentioned this yeah. to me now. Yeah, yeah. I thought I should mention that before this goes any further. Before uh, we think you're being racist or anything, or or, or animalist or anything. Yes. Um, yeah. Very good. Very yeah. good. So this is interesting. So it's almost like you're saying like narcissists are white sheep. It's like a. It, it's very interesting. Like you're or, or, or manipulative like dark triad people. You know, you wear the dark triad people who are you know Machiavellian and narcissistic and psychopathic. What are these people? You're saying that you're, you're saying in a way they're actually white sheep. God, I'd have to think about that type. I'm not an expert on all these typologies. It's it's really it's really more an emphasis on the positive, you know. It's a it's an emphasis on you know. If one time I'll give you an example, my 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 friend and somebody who's been a great peer mentor to me is Richard Tate, who's the uh, who's the founder of Cranium. And I had interviewed him for True North, the first book I did. Accidentally did this book, and it was just a wonderful opportunity that fell into my lap to go out and learn from all these interesting people and. Yeah. I met with Richard and, and Howard Schultz in Seattle the same day. Howard at Starbucks and Richard at Crane, and they're they're both close friends. And I just felt like, wow, these are my this is this is my tribe. These yeah. are like I'm feeling something I didn't know. You know, this is inside calling to me. What was it? What 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 was it? What was the commonality between you and them? Well, I think uh at the at the core of what Richard is all about, 
um, and which I was going to tell you about black sheep. But, you know, so Richard loves black sheep and he's been very supportive. He's got a whole T-shirt line that he's developing for us. Um, and he says, you know, it, it, it makes me feel like I can be me. I can be human. Yeah. And, you know, that to me, to be able to hear that from somebody who's been who's given that gift to me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's like it, it brings emotion. I mean, it's like there's there's that humanity that is really hard to find. Yeah. But if you're you know, there's so many people striving every day courageously to get to that and just be themselves and, and be able to you know, make a living in this world. I mean, that's a, that is a heroic undertaking. Um, so, you know, that, that to me is really what we focus on is the positive with black sheep. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about white sheep, to be honest with you. Um, no, I understand. It's just so interesting because it's, it, 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 it's so much in line with uh, humanistic psychology, positive psychology, things that I, you know, personally interested in research and this idea of self-actualization. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been a fascinated student, uh, you know, kind of a layman student of, of the field of positive psychology, and as it's gotten into the, you know, into neuroscience, and as that's been more validated uh, as a, as a line of research and thinking, and how it's influenced business, how it's influenced government planners, how it's influenced uh, people at the very individual level thinking through how to find meaning in their life without you know, religion necessarily being the centerpiece. So I think it's a, it's a movement, huge movement that is, is changing the world. And yeah, I would say, you know, Richard and, and, and Howard are humanists as best I can tell. Um, and so, yeah, that would be a common thread of values. And I think the other thing is that there are different types of entrepreneurs and I know from working in venture capital, there are certain entrepreneurs who are very pragmatic, who just want to, they could, they could be working in a, in a in a mattress business or they could be working in a poster business or they could be working they don't really care they just want to turn into a good business and I went to business school with a lot of people like that and then there are entrepreneurs who have to really be passionate about their idea and really create it and I call these entrepreneurs more artistic entrepreneurs and I would say Howard and Richard are both those types and I, I feel like that's more the camp that I would fall in um, personally so I think that's those are two yeah yeah, I'm just trying to think about. I, I keep thinking. I'm sorry. I keep thinking about well, the white sheep. So, what if there's a bunch of white sheep who, if self-actualization is a fundamental human drive of human nature, and you have lots and lots of white sheep who, in their hearts, really want to express their unique self more, um, but there's an individual differences variable there. Maybe shyness, or maybe anxiety, fear, things that are holding them back. I mean, shouldn't we empower them too? Absolutely. I mean, so they could be kind of converts, right? I mean, you, you'll accept well, white sheep who want to be black sheep, yeah? I, you know, I, I don't like. I say I don't. It's hard for me to go around labeling people as white sheep because I, I just don't think in those terms really. Um, there's Everyone has there's, a black sheep inside of them, basically. Yeah, I feel that way. I feel like there are certain people where you know it's just like. I mean, like I've been I've been working on an assignment with on violent extremism with the White House, and it's been a pretty pretty interesting assignment. Um, and I, it's it came to through through other members of Silk and Guild, and I sort of look at these some of these people. And I say it's pure evil, you know. It's just like uh, that's white sheep to me. Um, but you know, 
for people who are just wanting to take their own path and, 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 and wanting to, you know, start taking the first steps towards it. Um, I think the best thing you can do is hang out with people who are creative. So when I came out of business school, I wanted to do something more create more more entrepreneurial, and it was very hard to yeah. to get to that. It took years of you know some very dark years, yeah. but I just I hung out with entrepreneurs and with artists, and and then it became very natural for 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 me to take that path. It was it was like it was very validating, and so for those for those types of people, I hope that Black Sheep in different cities we can have outposts, for example, in different cities to help people who are kind of wanting to be more creative to kind of bridge more into those circles. I really like that. I mean, it's a, you're starting a movement. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's very organic. So it's, uh, it's fun. We have a lot of fun and, uh, you know, who knows where it will lead, but we're just setting it up so that it has a strong mission and culture and, uh, let it go from there. It's great. So part of being a black sheep is, um, would you say play is a central component of that black sheep have? So we definitely we play a lot, um, and there's just, there's a huge sense of humor I think to the whole culture. Um, but you know we have five values. We sort of said, and Richard Tate helped to create these values. It was like the five C's of curiosity, um, curiosity and collaboration, and having conviction for ideas and be willing to chase after those. Um, yeah, you're willing to make a contribution, a positive contribution. Basic creative values, right? We could just say five C's and then. We said there's only one rule. You have to, have to spend 5% of your time, 5% rule, 5% of your time towards social good causes. Nice. Um, time, not at, money. At least 5%. You can spend more if you want, right? Yeah, at least. And uh, that's those are the rules. And, you know, no assholes. So those are basic guidelines. And, and we're not political. We're social entrepreneurs. We're uh, focused on using uh, creativity to solve problems in new ways. And, okay. We take we do these operations that that's how we channel our energies. That's pretty incredible. Uh, you also talk about so we talk about play. You also talk about openness to experience, which you you may know is my that's my favorite. Yeah, that's, that's my favorite. Yeah, if I had yeah. to pick one, yeah, because it's true that this creativity is just connecting things. Well, that's that goes us back to our in synthesis conversation we had earlier. But you're like, all I'm doing is, is integrating. Well, you're also connect that oh, you're connecting. Yeah, connecting. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's sort of how that's how my mind is wired. Right? Is yeah. to be, uh, you know, intuitively connecting different, whether it's people or ideas or problems to people to whatever. I mean, that's sort of how. Yeah, that's sort of how I'm wired. Yeah, and me too. Now I totally understand, uh, and I think that this all in terms of connecting things, right? So we can connect the idea of some, of little bets. Um, the more little bets you make and you see before you all, you know, the more risk for the mill, so to speak, you have to connect the, the dots, right? That's you, right. You have, Absolutely. you can just view everything as just grist for the mill. Yeah. You know, I, I personally, um, I don't, I don't necessarily frame it that way personally. I mean, and I, you know, I think it is a great way to frame it. Um, but yeah, how do you think about it? I'm just really curious. I mean, yeah. I just, I, you know, I'm a, and I'm a peer learner. So whenever I'm talking with someone, I'm always thinking about, uh, 
you know, what can I, what can, what can I learn? What can I give? You know, here it's just it makes life interesting to be able to do that. Um, and then, and then things start to, and then insights pop up later in conversations. I mean, you know, today I was at a company, I was advising them on something that they're wrestling with. It's a really interesting company. It's a really interesting set of problems. And if I think on that whiteboard, on the ideas that we were, that I shared with them from my view on what they could do, it's spanning many, many experiences and chapters in my life, people, concepts, blah, blah, blah. And the company was really thirsty for this. I mean, just like they needed this. And um, so, yeah, it just kind of all comes together. But I, I love the way John Donahoe put it when I interviewed him for True North. He said, just learn a little bit from a lot of people. And, uh, you know, don't think of any one person as a mentor, but everyone can be a mentor, you know? Yeah, and you do. You talk your, in your book about uh, the importance of networking uh, with people from different backgrounds. All, all these things to me just seem like uh, it's all connected to uh, connecting dots, right? You can you can connect dots through ideas, through people, through it's it. It to me, it comes down to openness to experience and curiosity. Yeah, right. I'm curious when I say openness to experience. By the way, I curiosity is 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 the central aspect. Exploration. And curiosity, that that's what holds uh, openness to experience together. So I'm... Totally you know, on that note, I think it's really important that uh, I make this one point, and that is... Sure. By virtue of this strange job that I've had, I've met all these leaders throughout, you know, my work in venture capital and, and, and as an author. And I'm always struck by how the best leaders, the best entrepreneurs, whether it's Howard Schultz or Chet Pipkin, who started Belkin... Um, or Wendy Kopp, uh, the best of the best that I think of as the best leaders. Mm. They're all, or Ed Catmull is one of my favorites of Pixar. Uh, they're so curious. And, you know, they don't, there's no ego. They, you know, they, well, they have egos, but they don't present that in front of the interaction that we're having, you know? Like, I love it. Howard, Howard also, if I send Howard an email, as I've had a few times on a topic, he will, you know, he's, He's called me up and said, I want to talk with you about this. And he'll go through the details. And, you know, Ed Catmull had to learn how to do book publishing from scratch. And he just like literally turned to me, somebody who's, you know, a nobody compared to Ed Catmull. And he said, you know, how do I figure all this out? And, and, and I just feel like there's that humility to be able to listen that and, and ask the right questions and to listen yeah. that, you know, you can probably get away with, like, Steve Jobs probably wasn't the best listener. I'm sure he wasn't at all. So, you know, there are a few people who can get away with that. But most people are really shooting themselves in the foot if they aren't taking every opportunity to learn, you know, and and, and, and having their ego get in the way of insight that could help them do their do their job and lead their company much better. So it's a philosophical point, but I also feel like there's a whole – practical, you know, there's practicality behind it too. I'm sorry, what do you say? I stopped listening. No, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. I'm joking. Joke. Uh, you're t- Who's the audience here? <laughs> what do you mean? This is, is this, is, where does this go? Does this the whole go world, up? the whole world. On, on, through iTunes or through, what I, are you doing? iTunes, Scientific American. Oh my gosh. Why? Well, I know you got a huge following, so I hope that I'm not, you're killing this. No, isn't he killing this? No, you're totally killing this. By the way, you got my joke when I said, "What do you say?" Right? 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I want to make it clear. I was actually listening. Um, I was just waiting to, for you to stop talking so I could make that joke. <laughs> I was like, uh, I was like, could, oh, I, can you get give me, give me the punchline? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, um, yeah, no, you, you're gonna get. You're, you're, I'm gonna promote this up the kazoo. Um, it's it's good. It's really good. Um, yeah, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about like educational implications of all of this because this is obviously something I'm deeply interested in. You know, you have lots of black sheep in classroom that we label with all sorts of things, ADHD, blah, blah, you know, dyslexia, blah, blah, blah. I, I imagine a lot of black sheep that are part of your, your you know, I, you've identified, I bet a lot of them have, you know, struggled through certain things. It hasn't, life hasn't been easy, right? So, yeah, I'd love, to, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about what we can do to, to support those, uh, those folks. Amen. Um, it all goes back to education, as I said earlier, and... I think you're right. I think um, the people who have taken, you, you know, the creative, there are so many challenges to the creative path. When I was in the second grade, um, you know, my teacher gave us all these worksheets to do, uh, long division, multiplication, all this worksheet after worksheet after worksheet. And all I wanted to do was go out and play. You know, I just wanted to be a kid. Me too. Um, and so I eventually got kicked out of that class. You know, that was sort of the... <laughs> It's like this, you know, the first little challenge of my my young life was getting kicked out of this class and, and you know, out of the, uh, it was, you know, kind of a, call it a, a gate class, an advanced class. And then I was, um, you know, after that, I was like, you know, just a regular kid, which was fine. But uh, I was wondering, like, why, why was I no longer with that group of people I've been with for a few years, you know? So it was like, I think there's just, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, that. I, I've been really drawn to what I've learned about Montessori um, and programs like that that encourage young kids to follow their curiosity uh, and to, you know, as, as, as best as possible within some guidelines, um, you know, learn how to be self-learners at a very early age. And uh, I find that I wrote an article about this in the Wall Street Journal uh, called the Montessori Mafia, which is uh, <laughs> I've probably a thousand emails about because every every mother and you know every every wife has has sent their you know husband this article and uh, who's interested in this type of creativity and education and so I've learned more about Montessori and and you know again I'm not a researcher obviously but uh, anecdotally I, I've not encountered one, only one or two cases where people say yeah Montessori was detriment to my education because yeah. it wasn't structured. I've heard such good things. Yeah, you know, and so... Why the uh, mafia? Oh, I, it was an article about how uh, the Google founders and Jeff Bezos and, like, uh, Julia Child, they were, all, uh, they were all Montessori grads. Actually, I didn't come up with the title for this oh. piece that the editors of the Wall Street Journal did, but it just made this case that there's this whole posse of creative people that happen to be Montessori grads. So it was a well-titled article for viral, uh, you know, for virality. But, yeah. Um, yeah, you would know about this better than me, Scott. Like, how can we uh, – yeah, how can we get some of those mindsets and the growth mindset and, uh, you know, the, 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 the nourishment of, cre- of curiosity yeah. uh, empowered from a younger age? That's, that's a longer-term project that I'd love to collaborate with you on with the Black Sheep Foundation. Oh, my gosh, yes, yes. I mean, I – I, I'm deeply interested in the value of play and holding off and postponing the uh, formal instruction 
you know, in kindergarten and uh, preschool and even first grade, holding it off as much as long as possible um, and having play and curiosity be the, the main drivers of youth. Um, and then it lays the foundation. I mean, there's some really fascinating research coming out showing that when you do hold off, um, you find better learning outcomes on reading comprehension, for instance. There's this great study in New Zealand that found that to be the case when the late, the quote late, you know, those who were in these environments where they're given more opportunity for discovery and play at a younger age. This stuff is, this it's really important. You know, it's not. Super important, yeah. No, it's life, it's life calling type important, yeah. What kind of, what do you say? Life? It's, what? A, it's a life calling for oh, me. Oh, yes, you know, yes, to, yeah. to help address this in education, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I would love to, to discuss potential collaborations. That'd be exciting. Yeah. And, so, and, and not just play, but um, appreciate valuing and rewarding creativity is another big angle, aspect of this. If you change the structures of an educational environment, so so instead of like a report card where you f- there's any such thing as failure, Everything is, you know, revisable. So I'm a big fan of making a revisable world, you know, because that's just, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and all the research we've seen from, again, Carol Dwecker, deliberate practice would, would support that, you know. So yeah. The, yeah. the world is screaming at us all, saying parent differently and, and teach differently. And the systems are just very slow to change. Yeah, they really are. And, uh, and we're not, you know, we're we're rewarding learning knowledge, as a, which is okay to a certain degree, but there's hardly any reward for uh, for creating new knowledge. And yes, I, I just I'm returning back now in my head to an original thing you said in the beginning of this whole talk, this whole talk about predicting the future, invent the future, and you know when you in, invent the future, then you have um, a whole bunch of other people trying to predict the implications of it, but let them be like maybe a whole bunch of white sheep <laughs> are predicting the implications, but be the black sheep who invents it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Create, create the, create a safe place for people to be human from the early stages of their life. And, you know, as much as possible, support them to find their, you know, find their self. Yeah, find them. You know, I always, I always thought that when we were doing the research on True North, we got into the histories of all these 125 people we interviewed. And there were some people who came out of high school with a pretty high degree of self-awareness. Mm, yeah. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. That person from a young age had a high degree of self-awareness, and that helped them in everything they did in life. And I thought, you know, God, when I came out of high school, I had no self-awareness, very little. And so, yeah, I mean, we just, uh, we need to create um, everything from safe spaces to cultures to systems that help, uh, you know, nourish nourish that human potential. I think everything you're doing, Scott, is pulling... Uh, the ore in that direction. And so from a research standpoint, there's just now a huge movement um, that I think is inevitably trickling over into educators, policymakers, yeah. business leaders. And it's maybe, you know, maybe our job to try to help amplify that. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a, a worthy job. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. It uh, takes team effort. 
Basil, do you want to have any que- do you have any questions? This is your unique opportunity for you to ask uh, Peter anything that uh, is on your mind. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, uh, you, by the way, we're bringing in uh, one of my students here uh, on the podcast. First time I've ever done this on my podcast, where I've had another voice here. This is Basil Jackson. Yeah. So, um, I guess uh, one of the questions uh, going through your book, um, you know, this this might be kind of uh, out there, but um, uh, I noticed you look at different types of, I guess, creativity. But um, I, I'm wondering, you know, is there is there any way that you think that you can compare, uh, you know, a, a group or an individual's creativity to that of another person's? Um, you know, is, is there any way to uh, rank creativity? Or, you know, do you believe that it, it is possible if, you know, or it is really, there's no measure of, you know, objective measure of someone's creativity versus uh, another group's? Boy, that's a good question. Um, I, well, I think, yes, it's possible for sure, because as individuals, we all say, oh, that's creative. And that's coming from some definition of creativity. And, you know, it's my definition is you're putting new ideas together in a way that's fresh. I mean, for example, I just got an email right before this call from my co-founder, uh, Silicon Guild, Ori Brofman, who's just a, he's just a font of ideas. And he's got a batting average of about 200, we joke. Um, but, but you know, he comes up with a couple great ideas yeah. every time, and, and it's like he sent this thing. Silicon Guild is by the authors for the readers. And I thought, you know, God damn it, that is so good. That is a fresh new idea, and uh, who knows if it'll end up making it onto our website? But it could just be our tagline for a very long time. That's creativity. Um, the psychologists, you, you know, the researchers have their ways of measuring creativity and. You know, I think, you know, it takes into account generativity and, uh, you know, number of ideas that, you know, kind of consider number of problems you consider. We know that you have to come up with a lot of possibilities before you even know what problems to be solved. You have to do the problem finding before you can do the problem solving. And so by definition, you know, you have to, you know, try a lot of routes because you're you're in new territory before you, you, you hone in on one. So... I'd say I'm, I'm, I'm pretty in favor of that definition of uh, measuring creativity as well, now that you ask. And I, I guess leading off of that, um, just in your opinion, you know, you're an entrepreneur, uh, would you say in any specific industry, is it harder or easier to, you know, uh, let that creativity flourish throughout that industry in terms of, you know, with starting a new business or um, even enhancing uh, a business or, you know, a product or an offering? Now, that's a great question, and I think the answer to that is 100% yes. There are certain creative um, creative industries where people who, you know, like this, you know, the, the process of generating ideas and developing ideas go. So it used to be the advertising world. Now that world is kind of melt, melting down. So those types of people tend to, you know, gravitate more towards, uh, product roles where they can use the product development ideas from design uh, in their job, or they go to, you know, of course we think of music and, you know, the, the, the storytellers of the world, whether they're movie makers or writers or what, what have you, they're storytellers. And on the other hand, you have industries where people are doing 
you know, I have a friend from business school who runs a business that does HR management. And it's like, you know, there's just, it's, it's, it's not a creative, it's not a place where there's a lot of, yeah, you know, it's just, fair enough. he's, yeah, he's pretty creative, but there's just not a lot of creative. But, not a lot of opportunities. Now that said, the places where some of the, some of the most creativity is needed where, you know, black sheep are kind of needed the most is to go into places like, you know, large financial associations and help people rethink their mindset for the way they go about their job because they're terrified of failure and they want, that's like the biggest challenge. They want to get out of that mindset because it's inhibiting them from doing their jobs well. So that sounds good. Well, thanks a lot, Peter. We really appreciate this chat and um, the really incredible work that you're doing for um, you're really truly changing the world. So thank you. And you are. I, I'm a, it's an honor to be with you guys. And uh, thank you for having me. I'm sorry I have a muffled voice, but I really enjoyed it. And I, uh, can't, I can't wait to follow the series. So thanks for all you're doing. Go Black Sheep. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as informative and thought-provoking as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode, go to thepsychologypodcast.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually 
in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 